Well, it is so good to be back here in this church and to be able to be a part of honoring my friend, Howie Batson, and uh, I'm so glad to be here today. Uh, this is actually the first time I've ever shared the platform with Dr. Joel Gregory, and I'm the preacher. Uh, he <laughs> has been named as one of the most effective preachers in the English language, and it may be on your mind, then why is Jeff preaching? And well, there's an obvious answer. It's 2020. You take what you can get. <laughs> My ministry career started in 1993, and I was a senior business major at Baylor in, in Intro to Ministry with Dr. Winfred Moore. And as part of that class, well, we did hear a lot of stories about this church, and we had to do a, a four-month mentoring assignment. And so he assigned me to some guy named Howie at Meadowbrook Baptist Church. And I'd never heard of Howie and had never been to Meadowbrook. And I remember driving there and thinking, well, I can live with anything for four months. And I got to the church and met Howie, and he said, okay, your desk is going to be right here. It's about six feet from Howie's. And my uh, ministry training started that day. And I had no idea that we would work together for 17 years. That mentoring extended just a little bit. Uh, of course, I was not here 25 years ago when Howie came and preached uh, on David and Goliath, though I do remember us debating what sermon you should preach that day. Uh, when he came. And I, I think it's so fitting to go back to that same passage today because there are elements in the story that I think are really uh, instrumental and essential to the way that Dr. Batson approaches ministry and to the faithful working of this church family. And it's the idea that the battle is the Lord's. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. When we think about that statement, the battle is the Lord's, that's an ultimate kind of faith statement, isn't it? That when it's all on the, all on the line and we're in the arena and the pressure is on, where will we turn? In obstacles and struggles and grief and pandemic, where do we put our faith? Um, when we face opposition, will we fight fire with fire? Will we strike back sword with sword? Or will we trust in the care and the provision and the providence of God and being faithful to those things God told us to do? The famous story of David and Goliath, of course, takes place on a battlefield. And the way that 1 Samuel describes it is that the armies of Israel are on one hill, the armies of the Philistines are on the other, and in between is this valley and the space between two armies, some of you may have experienced it. It can either be a place of rubble and burnt trees and barbed wire, or it can be a kind of a bubble of serenity ringed by violence. And I think that's the picture in Elah that day. In a beautiful valley, there's a brook winding through it, um, butterflies flying among the wildflowers as David knelt, and put his hand in the stream and felt the pressure against his hand for a moment and swirling eddies behind each finger. And unbidden, I imagine he evaluated this land for grazing sheep, uh, that green uh, meadows and still water, it was the kind of place that always restored the soul. And he picked up a handful of stones there and weighed each so smooth 
by centuries in this little brook, weighing them, choosing just the ones for this task. And, and then he stood and the reverie slipped away uh, as he came back to the shouts of anger all around him. For David was between two armies facing a giant. And arriving at this spot is so surprising. Israel is facing the Philistines again, and the Philistines always had some kind of technological advantage over Israel. Maybe it was working with iron, or maybe it was chariots, and in this case, they've shown up with a giant. And the way that Goliath is described, he's really like a human tank. There's lots of statistics in describing Goliath. Uh, militaries love statistics. Generals weigh their statistics against the, the enemies of how powerful, how many, how far. And everyone there that day understood what the statistics said. Here's the description of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17:4. A champion named Goliath, who was, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His sword bearer went ahead of him. Some of these numbers are hard to translate, but our best guess is it's about 125 pounds of armor plus a huge shield with a shield bearer in front of him, which seems like cheating, but who's going to argue with Goliath? And so every day he's strutting out into this peaceful valley, violating it with his vile curses, um, raining taunts down, battering the hearts of King Saul and the Israelites. And it's in this scene that David arrives. I'd never thought about it this, until this week, but David walked probably over 13 miles that day from Bethlehem, uh, delivering bread and cheese to his brothers in the army. Cheese makes everything better, doesn't it, when you have a hard day facing a giant? But more important than that, David brought this prayerful imagination, a worshiping imagination, a living faith in God that is strong and clear and in stark contrast to the spiritually defeated army of Israel. They were battered by fear and by the curses of Goliath, the shame of being so powerless against such an enemy. And David looks around at this scene and he doesn't mentally calculate troop numbers or the quality of their armaments, but what David is able to see is God's reality, that this army is the army of the living God. How can they be so demoralized and defeated? What's a nine-foot giant compared to the power of God? Earlier, um, we heard the story of David going to King Saul, and he's brought, and, I, and um, Saul sees us all as folly. Goliath has been killing grown men since before David was born. But Saul doesn't have any better options, and so he tries to bridge that statistical gap. So he takes what is surely the finest armor to be found and puts it on David and the strongest sword, and David knows that it won't work. Uh, the problem is not statistics, and the problem is not armament, but this is a spiritual problem that they're facing. David will use tools of faith. And as David slipped between the front line of Israel and walked into that open valley, 
wearing exactly what he'd been wearing when he walked out his door in Bethlehem that morning. I wonder if, as he stepped forward, his mind fully alive in prayer, uh, did a flash of inspiration come to him? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. After I kill this giant, I should write that down. Uh, So David, he kneels at the brook, that posture of prayer, and, and weighs these tools that are authentic to him. And then David faces the giants. Again, the taunts, the mocking, the curses. And David responds with one of the great statements of faith in verse 45. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this very day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. One of my favorite books we read when I was at Truett Seminary was Eugene Peterson's Five Smooth Stones for Pastoral Care. And the guiding image of that book is taking this picture of David and selecting these tools these tools that he will use. And I'd like to borrow that image just to think for a few minutes about the ministry of this church and Dr. Batson over the last 25 years. Um, Because really leading any First Baptist church during these decades has been like facing a giant or two. Um, Part of, of what was so intimidating about Goliath is he was unprecedented. In describing his armor, it's picked from all over the ancient world, and Israel had nothing in their toolkit to deal with this. And the last 25 years have seen incredible changes in our world and in the church that we've never seen before. For example, in the last 25 years, the fastest-growing religious self-identification in polling is not Baptist, and it's not Presbyterian or Methodist, but it is none as in no religious affiliation. Church has become less and less an expected part of people's lives. And then so many churches in these decades have fought over things like worship style, worship wars, these self-inflicted wounds, and so many churches have suffered and veered from one direction to another during this time. Um, And we faced in these decades what uh, one Baptist historian has called the changing sociology of Sunday morning. Uh, That's a fancy term for soccer. Uh, (laughs) 25 years ago, you never dream of a a practice on Sunday morning, and now that's a very normal thing. And and just the growing professionalization of youth sports where team becomes the community. These have not been simple or straightforward years in church leadership. And under stress, many pastors have really borrowed Saul's armor in trying to deal with this. They've gone maybe with business consultants and just a marketing approach, or or others have chosen partisan politics, just taken one party or or the other and and put a little veneer of Jesus over it. Or, Or others have gone all in on entertainment, the highest entertainment value, the lowest commitment asked, and gone a gimmicky route. And that's like Saul's armor. It's, it's ill-fitting and inauthentic. 
But what is so impressive about this church and your ministry with Dr. Batson is how you have steered through these choppy waters uh, with an authenticity and integrity of ministry and missions. As David took five smooth stones from the brook, I would try to identify five keys to Dr. Batson's ministry and the thriving of this church. And I asked some of the other longtime staff members for their input uh, as well. One of them did list among key traits of Dr. Batson that he can finish his lunch before you take a bite of yours, and that his phone calls can end abruptly, and that he's a closet professional singer. And I won't say who said that to protect Dan's identity, but <laughs> our lists were, were really all pretty close about important factors. Uh, first is an unwavering commitment to God's Word as the foundation. Uh, one staff member, member just commented on your willingness to stand and say, thus saith the Lord. Even when the winds are swirling in other directions, even when it's unpopular, um, but to ground teaching and proclamation in Jesus Christ and in God's Word. Second, a recognition that there is no substitute for hard work. Putting in the hours and the care and the effort and the emotional energy to do this work and to push ministry here higher. Uh, third, Dr. Batson is an incredible visionary and has real boldness, and you can see it in the makeup of this congregation, in the transformation of this church campus. You as a church have been open to big and audacious and worthy dreams and visions and making those happen. Uh, fourth is great administrative stewardship. One person described it as administrative genius, and, and Dr. Batson is so prudent with your giving. So careful with that. For years and years, Howie had the most broken down office chair, and if you sat in it, you just flipped backwards, like a suspended in the air. And several times I said, you know, Howie, you could get another chair. And he would respond with something about the widow's might. He wants to honor every single gift. And then a great steward of people, resources, and staff. Um, Howie always encouraging, expecting our best, expecting hard work, um, and, but giving us space, celebrating the su success of the staff, uh, giving guidance where it's needed. You have a wonderful gift for that. And, and, this, and the fifth one is, I think, maybe one of the most important. It's the first that came to my mind uh, and was really unanimous on the staff that I talked to. Uh, and that is that Howie has modeled and demonstrated genuine love. So many pastors are aloof from staff, much less congregation. Um, but Howie has grieved with you and, and cried with you and laughed with you and given for you, uh, rejoiced with you, advised you. Um, that's just his mode of, of operation. I don't remember which birthday it was. It was maybe when my son Mark was turning five or six, and he wanted a Batman motorcycle cake, and Market Street United did not have a big section of those. And I don't remember how I mentioned it to Howie, and Howie said, well, I'll make that. And he made what is clearly the world's finest Batman motorcycle cake with a bat cave and everything. And I know that I have seen countless 
countless acts of loving service, whether it's a work day or a day off or a Sunday afternoon or Christmas day uh, giving. I think many years from now, when the story of Howie's tenure here is told, it will be the story of mutual love, of a congregation that has loved the Batson family well, and of a pastor who has loved you so very well. Uh, we could list many, many more, uh, but woven through all of these is an abiding and real faith in God and in Christ and in the authentic tools for the work of ministry. There have been challenges along the way and obstacles and losses and grief and giants, in fact. But Howie, I so admire your faithful trust in Jesus and your spiritual imagination in recognizing that the battle truly is the Lord's. And this element of trust and faith, it turns out this is really one of the key themes of the entire scriptures uh, in another place, Scripture will say, it is not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my Spirit, declares the Lord. Or we turn to the New Testament and we are saved by faith through grace and not by our works. Or when we look at the example of Jesus, He confronted oppression and corruption and sin with love with forgiveness and with obedience to God all the way to death, and God exalted him in resurrection. And, and this is important for us all to remember today, this spiritual truth for our challenges, because in 2020, we're, we're all in the arena, aren't we? We're all facing giants, huge economic problems, health problems, political problems, protests, um, division, it just feels like two armies are facing off and screaming at each other, and we can start to feel like, like Saul's dispirited troops, our God imagination ruined by it all. We can be tempted to grab for some of Saul's armor. Uh, if the world's full of outrage, well, well, we'll get outraged too. Or the world is full of conspiracies, well, we can lie and slander too. Or, or grievance is what's gaining traction in the world. We'll show how aggrieved we are, how bitter and shaming. But we need that reminder in the midst of the arena and facing giants, that reminder of David with that fresh imagination. Don't you remember who you are? You are servants of the living God. And God has equipped each of us, every one of us, with the tools that we need to face 2020 and to face this year. Jesus modeled sacrificial love, and He calls us to that kind of love. Uh, he's called us to being peacemakers in a world of division, to em embody and demonstrate what it looks like to come together in all of our diversity under the Lordship of Jesus. God has equipped us with the beautiful fruit of His Spirit. So let's continue to face these giants in faith, knowing that the battle is the Lord's and we are called to be humble servants. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for strengthening us, for providing everything we, that we need for the challenges we face. 
And Lord, we know that um, the surprises to us of this year are no surprise to you and that you have a plan for us, that you have a plan for this congregation, that you have a plan for each person here. Lord, inspire all of us with that faith in you and in your power today. In your name we pray, amen.